Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network in Genocide Studies. My name is Yakir Englander, your host. Today we will speak with the editors of Collection of Articles, The Struggle for Understanding, Elie Wiesel Literary Works, published in 2019. Elie Wiesel grew up in a Hasidic Jewish mystical family and community in Siget in Eastern Europe. But in 1944, as a young boy, he was taken to Auschwitz. In his novels, From the Night, The Gates of the Forest, and more, Elie Wiesel touched the hardest questions about life after the Holocaust. The meaning of the relationship among humans and between people and the divine. He meditates about love and prayers, trust and touch, and as few examples. In this collection of articles, we find the newest scholarly voices around the literary works of Wiesel, who passed away in 2016. The editors, Victoria Nesfield is a research coordinator in the Humanities Research Center at the University of York in the United Kingdom, and Philip Smith, a professor of English at the Savannah College of Art and Design in Hong Kong. So, Vicky and Phil, welcome to the New Books Network. My first question for you is, can you share something about yourself that have made you to dedicate some of your research to the Holocaust and more specifically to Elie Wiesel? Vicky, maybe we start with you. Of course. Well, my background is in Holocaust literature and testimony, and my PhD looked at uh, Wiesel and Primo Levi and really a, a comparison of the two. And what got me interested in that research in the first place to begin with was Primo Levi. And I was just reading The Drowned and the Saved. And it was one of those really fortuitous instances. I don't know why I picked the book up. I don't know why I bought it. But I did while I was doing my undergraduate degree. And I was really only about 30 pages into it when I knew that I wanted to really pursue Holocaust literature, Holocaust testimony. There was just something about the way it could be written so powerfully, so beautifully, and weave in these theological questions and the the historical and the traumatic and just in such a captivating way that I would say that's that's the thing that, that grabbed me, something that I didn't intend to study, didn't intend to read, just captivated me so, so quickly and has, has held my interest all these years. Thank you. Phil, what about you? So um, I feel like there was, a, there was a point in my life where I, so for A-level I did um, history, literature and economics, and there was a while when I was putting serious consideration into, into studying economics um, as, as an undergrad. Um, I had two wonderful teachers at A-level 
um, where um, they were really encouraging. And it was the first experience I had of kind of occupying a book um, in a way where kind of the language becomes your own and you kind of live inside um, a text. And that made me want to um, pursue English literature. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I, I was a bit of a, or I sort of thought myself something of an iconoclast in that I was more interested in studying um, kind of pop culture um, through literature rather than um, the kind of the, the classics. Um, and from that, I, I got interested in studies and I discovered um, Art Spiegelman's Mouse, um, which was a comic which sort of from as soon as I read it, I didn't stop writing about it and I haven't stopped writing about it. So I did, um, I studied it for my MA thesis. Um, I did my PhD on Spiegelman. Um, and, and so my interest kind of grew from there. Um, it's, it's such an incredible, powerful work and one that I keep on coming back to and keep on being surprised by, um, and so it was through Spiegelman that I kind of encountered other forms of Holocaust literature, and and, um, and this is a subject I kind of grew into from there. Mm, thank you. It's so interesting how we come to projects, right? What capture us? What make us to choose that? Um, so even so, when we think about Elie Wiesel and and um, and your specific project. Um, I wonder if you can share with us a little bit, what did you find missing in the research about Elie Wiesel? Because he's one of the writers, um, one of the survivors and writers um, and theologians that so much was written right about him. Um, and I also, if you can say something about the title, I love your title, The Struggle for Understanding. Yes. And your choice to focus on the literature of Elie Wiesel. Um, can you share with us what was missing there and your choices about the title? I think to, to, to talk about the, the first point initially, what was missing, there wasn't too much missing, I would say, in terms of uh, the biographical work on Wiesel and actually a lot of commentary on his early things. But what we point out in the introduction and what we were both struck by when talking about this in the very early days of the project is just how much he had written and how noticeably he has outpaced those commentators. So the, the, the secondary reading, the academic writing on him, it just, it seems couldn't keep up with him. Uh, he just continued to write. He continued to evolve his, his style in some ways, and but at the same time, keep revisiting those themes, keep refreshing them, and just keep coming up with with new texts and new perspectives that are really interesting, really valuable. But he was just just writing at such a rate and publishing at such a rate, right up until twenty twelve, I think was was hostage, and we were struck by how much of the, the later writing there was and how valuable it was in its own right, but also in, in comparison with the early writing, but there just wasn't the, the commentary out there on it. Yeah, I'd, I'd echo that. Um, 
I think that there is there's no paucity of writing, um, um, but it's it's a commentary on such a large body of work that there's there's so much to be said and so much to be kind of built upon. Um, and if you think about, I mean, people are still writing about Hamlet. Um, there's there's no point where we can kind of say of an of a writer. Um, okay, that's it. We've said everything that's to be said. Because, of course, um, any work comes to mean something else as the world changes and as readers change and as new people encounter these works. And then, again, as Vicky was saying, there's this kind of this later work that whilst, whilst criticism seems still sort of seems to center on night, um, primarily, and, and then on the kind of the biographical stuff. There was the Sonnenberg case, there's Hostage. Um, there's kind of so much more stuff that was, that was being put out. That it's such a, a rich body of literature to keep on going back to. And Phil, can you share with us about the title, The Struggle for Understanding? Why this yeah, title? I think... I, as much as I'd like to take credit for it, and again, this is a few years, a, a book is a, a long time in the making. Um, so we kind of, as I was reading the intro again, I was thinking of remembering what it'd be like four years ago being in the library and, and ordering these books. So my memory may be a little hazy, but I believe that the publisher, um, I think we went for something far more prosaic. Initially, it was just going to be, you know, the novels of, Um, and the publisher said, um, how about the struggle for understanding? And we were like, yes, great. Let's do that. So I think, I think credit goes to that. Am I remembering that right, Vicky? Yes, absolutely. That's my memory too. Okay. Good. <laughs> I, I really love how much, um, as I was reading, um, the different articles in the book, I was thinking about that so many of them. Um, try to touch maybe like two elements of understanding the understanding of Wiesel to try to understand what's happening to him and mm -hmm. the language that he has he has like two languages right he has a language of um, the Hasidic the mystical Jewish world that he tried to give words for that right he tried to capture what is happening with this language but also he has a, the more post-Holocaust language, you know, the literature that he's writing, um, the world that he is inside because he chose after the Holocaust not to go back to the Hasidic Vizhnitz dynasty, but to live, you know, in Paris, in the United States, um, to have a dialogue with other, um, with other writers um, and, and philosophers and politicians. I also think about the question that probably we all ask, right? I mean, how to understand the Holocaust. Um, as a Holocaust, um, I'm, I'm second generation. I think it's a question that we still struggle with. I mean, I don't know how to understand um, how to understand what's happened, not from the historical point of view, but from the existential point of view. Um, and, and it leads me to my next question that I'm, I really want to learn from you. So you choose to focus on the literature of Wiesel. And I wonder as scholars of uh, literature, um, I wonder about the relationship between literature and history. Um, 
because on the one hand, unlike history, uh, literature give us much more maybe the deepness of not the facts, but what's happening to the people, right? I mean, they can write about the inner world that is happening for them during the Holocaust. However, I think about so many of us, we know the Holocaust by Paul Celan, by Elie Wiesel, by Primo Levi, and in a way, we it's not exactly what happened. Um, and it's a question that I know Wiesel, uh, for example, he insists that everything in the night um, happened. Like he said, like, no, it's about history. He said that in a few interviews. But his other literature is literature. And I wonder if you can share something, if you can give more words, I feel confused here, about this tension between literature and history, mostly about the Holocaust. Well, I think the Holocaust is, is maybe a perfect example to, to me. My, my, my feeling is that it, there is no one history. I mean, for, for, to begin with, the, the concept of of history and this idea of a single narrative is is flawed and in any instance, but particularly in this case, and is is sort of dangerous. And you go back to this at its root, this idea that the the design of the final solution was to was to eradicate a culture, a community, an entire body of people is to take away a history it was to rewrite history so there's that 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 sense of there being a version of history i think the holocaust shows that to be philosophically a, a flawed concept um and i think for for the to survivors, for those who didn't survive, there are millions of histories, there are millions of stories, and we don't get to know the history of the six million Jewish survivors, the Jewish victims who didn't survive. We get the histories of those who did and who were able to write or to put into words in some way. And so we get a version of history. And as you, you say quite rightly, for many students, the version of the Holocaust that we get does come from people like Wiesel because he he wrote in in such a in many ways accessible way. And I think to go back to your earlier point about how he embodies these two worlds, these two languages, one of the things that I'm so struck by and I think comes through in the work of our contributors is that for many people who are coming to the Holocaust as young students or from outside who aren't the second or the third generation survivors, that Hasidic world is quite alien. The language is, is quite alien, is quite unfamiliar. The theology can be quite in, an intimidating subject, really, to tackle. And it's so so wound up in Wiesel's experience of the Holocaust. It's his community that disappeared. It's those elements of, of his traditions that were that were that he either hung on to or he witnessed in the camps or he saw destroyed. And I think one of the things he's so skilled at as a writer is weaving that language into a more accessible post-Holocaust vocabulary, post-Holocaust culture. Thank yeah, you. I, I, 
I think this is a this is such a huge topic um, of of how do we how do we try to communicate something of of this scale through language and a recurring theme um, of writers about the Holocaust is that really we can't um, this idea of we we need a new a new language um, to really kind of talk about um, about what happened and there is this kind of there's almost a kind of an impossibility to writing about the holocaust where on the one hand when in the face of um revisionism and fraudulent testimony and things like that we feel a necessary kind of imperative to be as accurate as possible but at the same time writers are, are faced with this kind of problem of well how how can you represent a subject of such magnitude, of such, um, you know, an, an atrocity on this scale? Um, there kind of, there is no language. It's both sort of traumatic on the individual scale, but also kind of in terms of everything we, we might think we know about the world. It's hugely disruptive. Um, and so th there's a sense in which writers cannot but give as accurate an account as possible, but also they, in doing so, they do so knowing that they will never be able to kind of fully communicate what happened, um, even in kind of telling their own accounts. Um, they're describing experiences the equivalent of which we will never experience. And I, I think that I've I've had students before where they'll read accounts like Vicel's and they'll say, "Oh, this this helps me understand what people went through." And I kind of go, mm, "I don't think we can. <laughs> like, I don't I don't think we can understand. Like, we we can listen and we can pay attention and we can try to absorb um, what these texts tell us. But I I don't think we should ever kid ourselves into thinking that we could understand or we could even kind of grasp in." in the smallest sense, um, anything other than a kind of a, a, a factual kind of account in, in terms of sort of numbers and dates. I love it. I love it because it's bringing it back. I mean, it brings us back to the, to the title that um, writes the struggle for understanding mm -hmm. and like how much should we understand? I mean, what's the ethical question about understanding? Because if I say, okay, so now I understand in a way, no, we, you do not. However, if I will not understand at least a bit, so I will not feel connected to the subject, so just leave me alone. And I think about like, um, as um, I was working for many years in Jerusalem as a peace activist, and one of the things that many Israelis Jews, they ask Palestinians in, in, in dialogue meetings is, please try to understand my past, try to understand the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And they say, what can we do for that? And they say, join us for a trip to Yad Vashem, to the Holocaust Memorial Museum. And then when they come to the museum, after that in the other meetings, the Palestinians say, Oh, so now you can understand us. This is what we feel many times when we see your soldiers. And then the Israelis get sometimes offended. It's like, no, you cannot compare it to the Holocaust. And I think it's so interesting because 
the fact that Palestinians from the other side start understanding or feeling, it's also create this community, you know, of and, and, and it's so complicated. I don't try to make it less complicated. I just want to show how much it is complicated. And maybe it brings us back to the question of, you know, why Holocaust survivors, they write. And I think also about a meeting between Elie Wiesel and a Palestinian young man that Elie Wiesel described, that they find a relation, they create a relationship in this, inter, in this meeting because of the common, uncommon um, relationship and, you know, um, what's happened to them. Which brings me to my next question for you. There are two fascinating chapters um, which focus on the question of the um, the role of the madman um, in one chapter, in the chapter of um, Jenny, um, Jennifer Moray, but also the question of the madman as a prophet, which we know that in, in Jewish theology, there is very deep connection between the two, prophecy and, and um, being madman, a madman that there is an article by Marie-Catherine Muller. And I wonder if you can speak a little bit to, to the listeners um, about this relationship, about the role of being who is normal. Okay, maybe this is a question that I feel in Elie Wiesel. What is normal? I mean, is normal to, I mean, to be in Auschwitz is not normal. And we hear it by the word of Wiesel that he says, my God had died because also my theology, the normal ultra-Orthodox Jewish theology doesn't work in a way in the Holocaust, right? Because it's not normal. Um, so I wonder if you can share with us a little bit about this relationship, about um, normality and craziness and madness and prophecy. Yeah, well, I mean, so the, there's been kind of various arguments about um, the kind of the, the, the question of w what is an appropriate kind of emotional or um, kind of in, in terms of expression, um, a response to something which is so shattering and so traumatic um, and so huge that, that really it kind of upends any distinction between kind of rationality um, and, and the, the kind of the total system of um, of the, the the ghettos and the the death camps um, of of what type of you know is is there any place for what we might think of as kind of of, of rationality or of kind of normal systems at work? So as, as you identify, we have a couple of chapters about the way that um, Wiesel makes use of the madman um, as, a, as a figure who's got a kind of a, an insight into the world um, that the other characters don't necessarily have access to. Um, and I think he uses that as a way to kind of um, address this idea of what, what could possibly be a rational response to the Holocaust. Um, it, it reminds me of um, the, uh, do you know the short story, The Reverse Bug? Um, by, I think, Lord. No. Um, 
where there is kind of there's a, an, an academic um, uh, conference on on the Holocaust, and it gets disrupted by um, the sounds um, being being played of of screams being played over the sound system, and it just kind of silences all of this discourse. Um, and Segal says it's about our failure to be horrified 24 hours a day. Um, that even when we try to kind of apply a, a rational lens to the Holocaust, we've already made a mistake. If we're, we're trying to kind of understand it through structures, which it, if, we are, if we are to begin to understand the Holocaust, we need to throw out those structures, would be the argument um, presented in that story. Thank you. Please, Vicky. Uh, yeah, so I was just going to say on, on the two specific chapters, or just to add to that, uh, I mean, we'll be really pleased to see see those two chapters come in and see how well they, they sync with each other. And in terms of how we employ them in the structure of the book, the, the first uh, chapter on the, the profit figures sits within our first part, which looks largely at Hasidic origins of Wiesel and of his, his literature. And then we put the second chapter on the madman by Jennifer Murray into the second part of the book on the other. So we sort of employ them really as a as a bridge from this this Hasidic world, if you like, into the the world of the Holocaust and the characters that we find within that and these other characters. I think because there is no sort of rational way of understanding what these prophets see, the, these visions that they see before before the, the other characters, um, and so bringing them out of that theological bubble, if you like, and introducing them in a way that the characters can't see, they can't understand, they, they think the characters are mad, they get very angry, I and mean, Mrs. Schechter is, is the maybe the best example of that and the frustrations and, and the real anger that the other people in the in the cattle wagon feel towards her and, and actually the violence that that they respond with. Um, that that is, is maybe the, the only way to to force this vision out of this, if you like, this this Hasidic tradition of prophecy and into this real world, this new world, this, this totally irrational world, but the new real world that, that Wiesel finds himself in and the characters in his novels find themselves in all of a sudden. And it worked, I think, really well to sort of move the move the text along, move our book along in, in terms of theme. Thank you. I, I, um, I also wonder about another fascinating chapter, um, about the bystander, right? Like the people that know or have some feeling about what's going on, but they choose not to act um, during the Holocaust. But we also have it in his in other novels, like when we have uh, the question about the life of the British officers that they capture and how much when they're going to when the the Jewish pro-Israel um, 
group, they decide to kill him as a revenge in order to show some to the British. And then the question of Elie Wiesel as a bystander, like how much he's going to be involved in the murderer or um, military act. Um, but it also put us, the listen, like the readers, as question of are you going to be a bystander? I, I think about what's going on now in the world, right? I mean, so now that we are, are aware, and I think that, I mean, the fact that we have such a strong media that allow us to have this interview with both of you in three different continental, but we also know much more what's going on in the world because of that. And um, we cannot run away. And I wonder about this place of the of us, the people who are sometimes more passive and what, what Elie Wiesel exactly want from them and what he wants from us. I think he's very, he takes a very strong line on the bystander. Uh, it's there, I think in, in so many of his, his novels that, that they are, have such a responsibility that the bystander, it's, it seems such a, a neutral word or a neutral name for figures who really are not neutral their their inactivity their inaction is what ultimately leads to deportations leads to starvation leads to abuse going unchecked unchallenged so he's very strong i believe on that the bystander it's it's you still have a moral responsibility. You can't, if you're there, if you can see what's happening, if you know what's happening, you you have a responsibility. You um, you can't sort of excuse yourself from from history and from historical responsibility if you were there. But I think at the same time, in terms of employing that role in so many of his books. As much as there's, I'm sure, an immediate emotional response from Frizel, from other people in his situation or who have been in his situation to say, why didn't you do anything? Why didn't you say? Why didn't you stop this? His characters, he does try to explore that um, and to question why, to look at the reasons why people don't intervene, why they didn't intervene at the time, and to recognise that there is something that holds people back, whether it's fear Probably it's, in a, a lot of instances, it's fear. Whether it's the um, the concern that it will cost you something to mm. let, to save somebody, to, to protect somebody, to defend a Jewish business, to defend a Jewish community. That w- would you lose out on doing that? Would these other characters lose something in? in offering that protection or in intervening in some way. So I think he he does use his literature to attempt to explore the mentality of the bystander, but at the same time, I think it's it's very clear in Wiesel's mind that, that bystander is not a neutral position. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd agree. Um, I, I think that... So Weissel was very much opposed to the kind of the, not to the fictionalizing of Holocaust accounts, but definitely to kind of sensationalizing or kind of rendering accounts of the Holocaust within kind of um, sort of Hollywood terms or that kind of with the, the three act structure with a cathartic ending. 
because um, I don't think he wanted his readers to feel like they've been let off the hook. Um, he's he's very interested in kind of the introspection um, of the way in which you know no one's no one's hands are clean here. Um, I, I think that we who come after would like to imagine well you know I would have been a member of the the resistance so I would have. Um, you know, uh, hidden hidden Jewish people, um, but the evidence suggests that in the overwhelming majority, people didn't. Um, and and when we kind of read heroic accounts of people who did, we we give ourselves the kind of the the false belief that these kind of acts of bravery were common, when in fact they were overwhelmingly not the norm. Um, and so I, I think that um, Vaisal doesn't let us take the easy way out. He's interested in the people who didn't act and don't and can't necessarily articulate why they didn't act. Um, he's far more interested in that than than kind of telling stories of heroism and escape. Yeah, thank you. And I also think it's coming, it's bringing us back to the place of the madman because the madman, in a way, demand from the Jewish community to act before, right? I mean, before the Nazis are going to send them to Auschwitz and the question of why do you identify that person as a madman and and, and it's allow you not to listen to. Um, which brings me to, <clears throat> to, my, to, to the third part of, um, of the book, which focus on theology and tradition. And what I love so much about this part and the articles you, you choose to bring to us is a question that Elie Wiesel also demand from Jewish theology to change. I mean, the question of my, the, the, the articles of uh, Ariel, Ivan Mayes and Dalbo and Sterling are asking questions about what their role of God in the Holocaust and in a way the falling of the traditional Jewish theology during the Holocaust, the place of the, the place of Jewish theology in order to remember, right? And the place of course of the um, Hasidic movement and the Hasidic theology inside that. And again, I want to remind us that in a way Eli Wiesel, he writes a lot about the ultra-Orthodox um, and the Hasidic um, theology, however, it chose after the Holocaust not to live among them. Um, and I wonder, what do you take from from these articles, um, which bring, I think, new light to to research of Elie Wiesel and the Holocaust in general about the place of God and theology? So I would, uh, I, I I want to pick up on how you said these um, these are really good chapters um and one of my feelings about um so i've worked on a few different edited collections um and out of all the ones i've worked on this one really kind of it it just came together so easily and it kind of through through peer review and everyone was was really awesome and, I, and i'm glad you mentioned these chapters towards the end um because i think a lot of the time i i take on a book project like this, or I, I work on an edited collection like this because there is a subject I'm interested in, um, but I don't 
I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily able to kind of unpack it. Um, And so I invite people who have a particular perspective to kind of come and tell me about it. And in the process of them telling me, we kind of, a a book appears. Um, I think particularly that chapter um, by uh, Rabbi um, Mace um, is really fantastic um, I don't know if I could necessarily do the argument justice um, here. I think that the role we played, um, I would say, is just kind of um, the the touches we made to that chapter, I think, were quite minimal. It kind of sailed in pretty much publishable, um, and it was just a joy to read. Um, and so I'd my suggestion honestly would be for for people to check out that chapter because I don't want to try to do it justice in my own words. So, right, I mean, the role of us as editors, I mean, the role of you as editors, it's like, how do you bring, it's like you give birth to new ideas to come, right? Yeah. Um, Yes. Vicky, do do you have some memories from, as an editor of this book, um, about these choices of uh, chapters and theology. Uh, yeah, and I absolutely echo what what Phil says, and, and it really was. I mean, it was a joy to work on the whole project. But yes, these these chapters were were particularly interesting. And again, I'm not a theologian. I wouldn't want to uh, to intervene too much in in how they were written. What I would say, though, is uh, that. What I think they bring is is again that that bridge between a theological world that our readers may not be too familiar with, if at all, and some themes which are more universal, or if not totally universal, that extend beyond Judaism, beyond Hasidism. So theodicy, this idea of this question of, or can you have a God who is not all good? That that's not exclusively Hasidic. That's not exclusively Jewish. It, it emerges in other theologies, in other in the work of other theologians, of course. But the Holocaust is it's just it's that perfect storm, if you like, of of culture and history, which prompts that. And Wiesel is so well positioned, I think from his background and his writing style to really interrogate that and what our contributors brought, I think, to this section is really exploring those roots, exploring those roots that are so personal to Wiesel, to his community, to the Hasidic origins, but put, but presenting them in a way that, that makes it um, approachable and debatable to readers who don't necessarily have that language, that vocabulary, um, and in the texts that they use, I think uh, there's such great choices because they span some of the, the, the older texts of Wiesel's write through to some of the more modern. So it, again, it shows this theme that Wiesel so artfully weaves through his whole body of work. Yeah. Yes. And, and he never. So I don't think. I don't think Wiesel ever gives us a kind of a an ultimate kind of answer for his position because I don't think he ever quite did. I think throughout his life, and when we visit different kind of 
periods of his writing, he offers different views of um, kind of theology and and the the way in which he. I don't think he ever quite he ever really kind of reconciles his experiences with his um, Hasidic education. Um, I think it was a question he kind of kept on coming back to um, and, and trying to answer. Um, and I think it's it's interesting for us to observe that process rather than kind of look at one one part of his work in isolation and say, okay, this this is what he thought, um, because it did keep on coming back. So it's bring me to the last question, which is the last part of the of the book. Um, I want to thank you for dedicating a whole part of the book to his later works because so many times you know people focus on the on the Thursday night and and maybe the you know the main um, literature that he wrote in his in the first years and I wonder if you can share with us a little bit about um, what did you bring into that I mean you have um, a whole chapter about the political vision and how his writings became, part of questions about politics, right? Which is so interesting. Um, and also it brings us to the question of um, what do we want to do with Elie Wiesel, right? So I wonder if you can share a little bit about the choice to bring the later works and what did you find there? I think we were very keen to have those later works in the in the volume, not least because as, as we discussed earlier on, that's the work that, that there's so little commentary out there on. Again, we were we were just very pleased to see what came in from the contributors. We we weren't too prescriptive in terms of what we were asking for. We were just very happy to see such a, a rich breadth of, of subjects. I think it's important that they're there, um, p- particularly the the chapter on on Wiesel's politics. I think um, he's he's such uh, an important name, not just in Holocaust literature, but in Holocaust education, in Holocaust memory. The fact that he his reputation and how he's known as a public figure extends beyond literature, the, the Nobel Peace Prize, the, the public platform that he had, it gives him more authority, I think. It gives him... Uh, a platform that other survivors don't have. And it's a question that we look at in the introduction, actually. It's p- particularly on the second chapter, no, sorry, the first chapter and, and how how transparent, if you like, Wiesel is about his influences from the early days of Siget and that community is a literary community. And I think we say in the, in the introduction, or we ask in the introduction, do we hold Wiesel to higher standards, perhaps, than we would other writers, particularly other writers of fiction. And I think we do, consciously or not. And I think the fact that he has this public and political platform, which other writers don't have, means that his work might be treated as as authoritative, that his his writing that, that might be fictional might be treated as more historically accurate or historically neutral than than it may be. And in fact, it's, it's very clearly not politically neutral. I think it's right that it's there. I think 
he occupies and he assumed that platform, he assumed that public presence to really talk about conflict in the world, and particularly Israel and Israel and Palestine. So he had a voice and he used it and he wanted to share that that voice. So I think in terms of his his literary body and the body of work, it's absolutely right that it's there and it's discussed. But also it really brings his work full circle. And of course, we were writing this or we were putting this book together after Wiesel died. So we sort of bring his, his literary body back full circle because so much of this political work from his later years the references the early work or offers a new position. I'm thinking particularly about Hostage and Dawn and how you could read those two texts together and how his writing style shifts, how that that political angle and his perspective, which to me is so is so lyrical and torturous and, and in a in a way, aesthetic in Dawn becomes much more aggressive and blunter in Hostage. And so I think there's a lot to say about how his writing style shifts, about the, the world that he was writing in and the, the culture and the, the events that he was perhaps looking back on as he was writing these later texts, but also what it says about, about how he he changed as a public persona and how that might have influenced his writing. Thank you. Yeah. I, I think as well, kind of going back to the, the introduction, one of the things we say is it's, it's such a shame that he's not still with us because he, all the evidence from his writing throughout his life suggests that he, he would not have stopped if he was still alive. He'd have things to say about our present political moments um, and it would be just as sage and just as important as, as his other work. I want to thank you for both of you, um, Phil and Vicky, for, for, first of all, for coming here, but also, and for sure, for editing this such important, I think, book about um, the works of Elie Wiesel. I, I love the title, The Struggle for Understanding. I think that now as people like Wiesel, right? I mean, it was published, I think, a year or two after that the, um, he passed away. And I think that now as more and more the survivors are passing away and they find peace, you know, um, with their souls, I think that the question and the struggle, the real struggle to keep understanding, but also to take responsibility that such events will not repeat um, and other events that are happening today. And I think that Elie Wiesel was such a light and also someone who said there is light, but also in order to have the light in darkness, we all must not be bystanders, but act in each one of us. And even by reading, um, we already learning something and acting. Um, so thank you so much for editing this book. Thank you. And thank you for your I'm contribution. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you.